Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you ever find yourself hiking on the Appalachian Trail and you begin to hear disembodied voices, run. Because soon your voice may be among them and your body will never be found. Welcome back to Unexplained Encounters. I'm your host, Darkness Prevails, and you can follow me on Twitter at Dark Prevails if you want to see this wicked video of a spider twerking at an ant. Today I've got an assortment of random stories, from scary hiking encounters to terrifying ghost women haunting lakes. Enjoy, and be sure to send me your scary stories at darkstories.org so I can narrate them. I'm especially looking for scary stories from truckers. Also, go to eeriecast.com to enjoy tons of other scary podcasts like this and to stay up to date on our upcoming horror novels and my cryptid card game. Now, let's begin. Voices in the Forest from Jasmine BVA This creepy encounter happened to my friend and I. Both of us are females and boutique, but I'm fit, and she's beginning to get healthy. We went along the Appalachian Trail at the Tai River Bridge. It's a national forest park. I know all too well about the stories about national parks, so my friend and I started to walk up this mountain. It was hot and humid that day, and we were both sweating pretty quick. As we walked, I couldn't help but worry because there was no one else around. Suddenly, an older man walked past us. He was a very nice man. Twenty minutes after that, a group of male runners passed us. They were also nice. These brief encounters calmed my nerves. But a few minutes after we were alone again, the forest was dead silent. And oddly enough, it would remain silent for about 45 minutes. Right after that, we began to hear people chattering around us. I looked straight ahead, and I could see the mountains and clouds. We were pretty high up. The chattering stopped, and it was dead silent once more for a while. Just our voices and breathing. After hearing that odd, disembodied chattering, I was on high alert, and so was my friend. At around 5.26pm, we decided to go back down because the thunder, to me at least, was a warning from God to get out of there. Plus, the silence and chattering in the forest was definitely not normal. As we went down the mountains, my friend wasn't the fastest, so she had trouble keeping up, because I was going the speed of light. We stopped a couple of times to catch our breaths. The thunder would boom every five minutes or so. We were nearly down the mountain, when I saw these two trees to my right, I was certain there was nothing there, but something deep down inside me told me to look over there as I waited for my friend to catch up. But I ignored it. Finally, we reached the end and we beat the thunderstorm. However, along the drive home, my friend told me something shocking. She said when we heard those voices, my friend looked around and could not find where the voices were coming from. And as she looked, she saw a red shirt, but no body and no person. She wondered if her eyes were playing tricks on her. But I told her that wasn't the case. Your eyes saw what they saw, I said. Trust them. To this day, my friend hopes it was just someone faster than us going up the mountain. But that doesn't make sense. She still would have seen their legs. She still would have seen the person attached to that shirt and the voices wouldn't have been coming from all around us. I think they were spirits. I think she saw a ghost. Entities which lurk on the Appalachian Trail. Thank God we made it home safe.
creepy encounter on a hiking trail from a user on Reddit with a name I can't say. When I was in high school, I played on the basketball team and ran track. To keep my cardio up, I used to run this 11-kilometer hiking trail that went through the hills right outside of my town. It was a small town. It was safe for the most part, and everybody knew each other. I wouldn't call this trail remote, because at certain points you'd pass by a dog park, train tracks, and one stretch of it ran alongside the highway. But some parts were pretty deep into the woods. There was an option to do a 4-kilometer loop inside of this 11-kilometer trail, and people traveled this route much more often. I hardly ever ran into anybody on the longer trail. I'd been running this same trail for three years, and nothing strange ever happened, until one day. It started off as it normally did. I parked my car on the dirt road that came off of the highway, smoked a little bit while queuing songs on my phone, then I put my earphones in, popped a piece of gum in my mouth, and began walking toward the trail. The only things I took with me on my runs were my phone, earphones, and a single car key wrapped around my index finger. I don't recall seeing anybody on the trail that day. This happened in the afternoon, and it wasn't abnormal for the trail to be less busy than it would have been during the evening. I walked for a few minutes while I was still on the crushed stone path. Once I got a little ways into the trail, it turned pretty rugged. Dirt and mud with large tree roots reaching across in all directions. I liked this trail because I had to focus on where my feet were landing with every step, so I was less focused on how much energy I was exerting. I was about halfway through the 11-kilometer loop, and this was really the most remote part of it. All forest, with a lot of hills and dips in the path and big boulders all around. I didn't see or hear anything odd, but out of nowhere, this extreme and sudden sense of dread overwhelmed me. I kept running, not really reacting to it. Once I reached a more flat part of the trail, just a few feet ahead, I took out my earphones while keeping the same running pace. It was then I noticed it was eerily silent. I acknowledged it, thinking it meant there's likely some sort of predator in the area. The only predators that would have been around me for wildlife would be a coyote, maybe a bear, but this would be very unlikely, as there are never any bear sightings anywhere near the town. I slowed my jog down to a walk, because the trail got steep, and I had to walk over knee-high rocks, but I was still moving fast. I mean, after all, I felt like there was something behind me. For some reason, the next part is very hard for me to remember. Just this slice of about 30 seconds feels a bit like I'm trying to recall a dream that I had. But what happened was, I saw something out in the trees. For some reason, when I try to remember what I saw, it comes out more like a blurry image. I know that it wasn't some animal. It was a person. It's hard to explain, but I could clearly sense this was a man. I pretended not to see this figure in the trees. I remember doing this so they wouldn't know that I was aware of them. This reaction of mine felt subconscious, automatic, 100% instinctual. The figure wasn't behind me in the way that it felt when I first sensed a presence. I could feel it in front of me to the side, like my two o'clock to be exact. It didn't move as I walked by it. The person just stood there completely still, watching me pass. Once I got up around the turn, probably 15 feet ahead, I ran so freaking fast, it was like my feet were about to detach from my body. I remember how weak my knees felt in this sprint, but adrenaline was carrying me out of there at a speed that was faster than I've ever moved in my life. I didn't hear footsteps, but it felt as if they were right behind me. It was almost as if I would feel two hands reach out and grab me at any moment. This was primal fear. I did not stop running until I was out of the trees and I could see my car. This may feel anticlimactic, but nothing happened, and when I looked back after leaving the woods, there was nobody there. 
My adrenaline was flooding the entire time, but this deep sense of dread left a couple of minutes after it arrived. I just knew I couldn't stop running, not until I was out. I think somebody was coming after me. Maybe they saw a five-foot young girl with long blonde hair running alone in the woods. Maybe they were waiting for somebody to pass by, but I have a gut feeling that they were out there for some other reason, and I happened to walk by at the wrong time. Nothing like this ever happened to me before or after this run, although I did switch trails after two or three more visits. I didn't feel the sense of dread that I felt that day, but I could never shake the feeling that it might happen again. Sometimes I wonder if something would have happened to me if I did keep running there. I don't live there anymore. I haven't been there in a while, and I haven't heard of anything bad happening there. But I do know that someone was in the woods that day, and they did not have good intentions when they saw me walk by. Has anyone else ever been out in the woods and experienced this sense of dread without really seeing or hearing danger? We all know about the primal instincts that we carry with us as humans, how we can feel a set of eyes on us without ever seeing it. What do you think? Was there someone out in the woods that day, or did I just scare myself really bad? Paranormal Activity in Madagascar From Indigo Lemur 9 I'm a 22-year-old Wyoming resident. I'm happily married, and I recently joined the Air National Guard as a radio frequency transmission apprentice. About two years ago, though, right as the Rona struck, I came back early from doing humanitarian service in Madagascar while spreading the word of the Lord. I'd spent nearly a year and a half going around the little island, mainly in the capital and the southern part of Madagascar, and the experience overall was the most rewarding experience I've ever had in my life. I ended up having to learn the language, getting to know the culture, and everything that comes along with the full force of culture shock. The capital, which is where this story took place, was absolutely jam-packed with people. People selling food on the streets, people driving buses and taxis, people riding bikes and mopeds. You get the gist. Everything was so loud and crammed into a 20-mile radius of a city with 1.3 million people. The entire place smelled like garbage, as they did not have sanitation centers to properly dispose of waste, nor did they have garbage trucks or reliable ways to dispose or recycle waste, other than burying or burning it. Anyway, my buddies and I all lived in a tiny apartment on the edge of a rice paddy, where people would come and plant and pick rice. It was a very peaceful place, with few people coming around those parts except to do their business. I won't mention exact names, but I'll call my friends and the people I worked with A, B, C, D, and E. I lived with A, B, and C, and I was required to be with A at all times. B and C were also required to be with each other at all times, and the same for D and E. It was just a part of the rules for us while we stayed down there. Anyway, D and E's apartment was about a mile away from ours, and they lived on the very top floor of the complex, with an incredible view of the northern part of the capital. Their living quarters, which is where the story takes place, was fairly larger than ours, with linoleum flooring, four beds in one room, a washer, dryer, and shower in one room, and a kitchen, with some little couches in between the bedrooms and the bathroom laundry room. There was a hallway that connected the main room to the bathroom, with another little study room included next to the bathroom. The story begins on a hot morning in February. We followed our normal routine that day. We woke up at 6.30, prayed, exercised, showered, ate breakfast, and planned for the day. A and I were just about to plan our day out, around 8am, when I began to hear some frantic shuffling in the other room. Around the same time, C's phone rang, and he talked to somebody on the other end. I don't recall what the conversation was like, but I do remember that C sounded really concerned about something dire. A and I paused for a while, watching B and C put on their shoes and run out the metal doors which sat at the front of the apartment. 
A and I were trying to get information about what in the world was going on. All that they told us was that we didn't need nor want to know what was going on, that we should simply keep planning our day. Before we could reply to that, they were gone. A and I looked at each other, a little confused and also concerned about what was going on. But what more could we do? So we just kept going about our business. Fast forward for about a month, it was my last day in that area, and I was getting transferred to another part of the capital. All six of us were at a local's home eating our last meal together, before we would go our separate ways. I thought this going away party would be a fun opportunity to spend some quality time together, without any negative vibes. Sometimes, that's just not how the cookie crumbles. While we were eating some delicious brownie bread, in the Madagascar language it's known as cockroach bread, D&D &D proceeded to tell us something that I will never ever forget. Something that shot liquid nitrogen through every naive bone in my skeleton. They started by telling us that one day in February, they were heading home from teaching some people after a long hard day of work. When all of a sudden, E became extremely angry. So angry, in fact, that he had never felt so angry before in his life. There was no reason for him to be angry, and both D and E could attest to this. This anger felt so strong and so lingering, it was overpowering. By the time D and E had gotten home and eaten some noodles for dinner, the anger went away in E. But at the exact same instant E's anger left, D was filled with the same sort of enragement. Fortunately, the anger went away gradually, and the two headed off to bed around 10.30. What was said next was what really got me. E told us that he then experienced intense, detailed, vivid dreams. He told us that he had four recurring dreams, but he would only tell us about one of the ones that he had. If I remembered correctly, this was the worst that he had. He dreamt that he woke up in his bed, and the entire apartment complex had been cleaned spotless. Dee's bed was neatly made, and Dee was nowhere to be found, his bed vacant. As this was happening, he felt as if something was terribly wrong. He felt as if someone, or something, was watching him. He then began to hear laughter coming from the other side of the apartment. This wasn't innocent laughter, and it seemed to be coming from a woman. He got up out of his bed to find the source of the laughter. The whole place was covered in darkness. He walked all the way to the bathroom where he thought he'd heard the laughter, but no one was there. Then the same laughter sounded again, now coming from the bedroom where he was just at. He went back to the bedroom and he heard the laughter again, this time within just a few feet from him. That's when he woke from his dream, only to find the same laughter taunting him in his own bedroom. When morning broke, D noticed that E was not acting normal. He noticed E was muttering nonsense to himself and staring blankly, like he was almost in a trance. E was acting really sluggish too, and he hardly had the focus or the strength to do anything that he could normally do under normal circumstances. When D began to iron his white shirt, E said something like, The iron is looking at me. He also said, that ironing board isn't ours, we have to return it. E continued to act very weird, and D began to worry more and more. After a few more hours of this, D had had enough, and that's when he called B and C to assist him in helping E with whatever was going on. Later, B and C arrived at the apartment, noticing immediately that something was off about the entire place. They felt a very dark vibe emanating from it. They also noticed how E was acting strangely, and they saw the fear in D's eyes. They then all gave E a blessing to alleviate whatever was going on. And after a moment, E remembered coming to in his own chair, staying silent for the remainder of the blessing. A feeling of peace overcame the apartment, and the feeling of darkness immediately left. Even though the story has a happy ending, and even three whole years after this mortifying story was told to us, I feel so creeped out at the fact that all this happened, and that someone I knew was quite possibly possessed. 
such a sad and sickening experience. I can only imagine what would have become of both D and E if B and C couldn't come to help. There were many other things that happened in Madagascar during my time down there, but I'll save those for a later time. Nowadays, I've been working as an overnight employee for about seven months now, and if there's anything I've learned, I just have one odd pearl to drop. Never ever ignore warning signs, and do not dismiss your instincts. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Do you believe in monsters? And given the chance, would you be brave enough to track one down on your own? In June's Journey, people are the true monsters, and you can live the story yourself rather than sitting back and listening to one. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. What is killing these soldiers? From 19 Delta Scout Every American military unit that deploys to serve overseas has its fair share of good NCO leadership, and almost every unit has that one NCO who stands out to be the very best. This NCO is the person who is extremely competent, and confident, a generous mentor to the people that he leads, the loyal supporter to his NCO peers, and the invaluable advisor to the officer in charge. This one particular outstanding NCO was the go-to person when other NCOs needed information or advice, and in our particular case, the outstanding NCO in our unit was my friend, a sergeant first class named Tommy. Tommy and I were sitting on a long, comfortable wooden bench in front of the barracks, relaxing after a particularly long day of patrolling. We were on a long elevated wooden deck which ran down the entire length of the barracks, and we rested our feet up on the wooden railing which bordered the deck. The setting sun cast the sky in brilliant and fiery shades of reds and oranges and purples, as it sank behind the mighty mountain peak known to us Americans simply as Big Duke. We were serving as NATO peacekeepers, stationed at the main American operating base called Camp Bondsteel in Kosovo. The summer was coming to an end, and with it our year-long deployment was also coming to a close. The weather was pleasant, and the colors in the sky mixed with the high clouds painted a breathtaking picture from our vantage point on the hilltop. Tommy pulled a pipe from his lips, and he said, I'm really going to miss this view. He leaned back on the bench and exhaled. I nodded in agreement. We have to come back to Kosovo someday, but not as peacekeepers as visitors. We did so much good here, I want to see if it lasts. We stared at big old Mount Duke for a while, and I said, Okay, explain to me the difference between a 223 ball ammunition round and a 556 ball ammunition round again. Aren't they the same? I knew that Tommy liked talking about everything guns, weapons, and ammunition. In fact, he was once an army sniper. I needed to get him talking about something so that I could ask him the question that I really wanted to ask. Tommy smiled as he took another puff from his pipe, explaining the differences. Huh, I nodded. We learn something new every day. At least I got him to start talking. Now I've got a question for you, said Tommy. Why do the Russians have 61mm and 82mm mortars? Because they're sneaky, I replied. We have 60 and 81 millimeter mortars, 
so theirs are exactly one millimeter bigger. That way, if we capture Russian mortar rounds, we can't use them. But Russians can very much use ours. I've trained you well, said Tommy, and we both laughed. Great, now maybe I can get to what I really wanted to talk about. Hey, Tom, I said. Is everything okay? I mean, are you going to be okay? So there it was. I asked it. Ours was a very close-knit unit, and bad news traveled fast. A few weeks prior, Sergeant First Class Tommy received a letter from his wife back home. She'd been cheating on him while he was away and had cleared out their bank account. She also threatened to divorce him and take away his two daughters and his house, as well as half of his retirement pay. Tommy, who for the past year served his country, his battalion, and his friends with courage and honor, would be going home completely broke. Tommy took a long puff off his pipe and exhaled slowly, watching the smoke dissipate. Then he smiled. Ah, oh, brother, he said. An hour ago, all my earthly problems went away. Huh? I said. I turned to him, wondering what he meant. I was about to ask him what he was talking about when he interrupted me. Let me ask you this, brother. Are you going to be okay? Getting a video call on Skype from your new wife telling you that she has been cheating on you has to be tough. Believe me, I know. What? How did Tommy know? An hour ago, after I submitted my daily patrol report to my team commander, I went back to my living quarters to talk to my wife on Skype. She was 23 years old, 10 years younger than me. We were married only two weeks before I left for Kosovo, so we really didn't have time for a proper honeymoon. I'd saved enough money during my deployment for us to have an awesome honeymoon in Europe, which would culminate in a trip to Ohio to visit her lifelong friend, which she had grown up with. She was usually happy to talk with me, but today she looked depressed and near tears. What's wrong, babe? I'd asked. Are you okay? Yeah, she cried. But you won't be. As it turns out, almost since the day I left, she'd been cheating on me with that lifelong friend and was now planning to move in with him and eventually marry him. They just needed money, money which I unknowingly provided to them every time I sent my paycheck back home to my wife. I stood up and stepped towards the railing. How did Tommy find out so fast? I knew bad news really traveled quickly in our unit, but this was ridiculous. I looked off in the distance, admiring the view. Dang, I was going to miss that beautiful sight of the sun setting behind Big Duke. I'll be fine, I said. You sure? Tommy replied behind me. I don't want you to do anything... Well, you know. Yeah, I did know. Suicide takes more American soldiers' lives than enemy bullets. Trust me, I said. I loved my wife, but I love my life as well. She's not worth me hurting myself. Glad to hear that, said Tommy. Just needed to make sure before I go. I turned around. What did he mean by that? An empty bench stared back at me. All of a sudden, I heard the wailing of sirens coming from the barracks row behind me. Emergency vehicles and medic Humvees were turning the corner as soldiers ran from their barracks rooms. I jumped the rail, running around my barracks towards the sound of the sirens. They'd gathered in front of Sergeant First Class Tommy's barracks room, and about 20 soldiers were crowded outside. A squad of MPs were pushing us back, keeping us from the door. What's going on? I yelled. A young female specialist from Tommy's team, tears in her eyes and crying inconsolably, said, It's... Uh, it's Sergeant Tommy. He shot himself with his own sidearm. They found divorce papers next to his body. What? I said. But I was just... No, that's not right. Even after he had died, Tommy was concerned about his friends. Even in death, he'd wanted to make sure that his friends would make it home safe. In fact, later on... At least three other soldiers claimed to have seen Sergeant First Class Tommy after he was dead. He had been checking on them too, giving them advice, encouraging them to continue to be great leaders of our young soldiers. I tell you the truth, 
the biggest killers of the deployed American soldiers are those darned Dear John letters. Tommy was the best of us. We miss you, brother. Passenger on Sky Blue Way From Am Jean Romeo At the time of this story, I was a new driver who had just started commuting to and from my workplace during the weekdays. Being so new, driving down the motorways in my city was a tense experience. My commute would take me down one of the main motorways, which was called Sky Blue Way. I note the name, as this would have an eerie connection to the event I'm going to tell you. Part of the road was enclosed on either side by two large brick walls. Along those walls, and dotted at several intervals, nestled behind the silver barriers, were often small memorials in memory of people who had died in an accident on that road. Sometimes you would have bunches of flowers, maybe a wreath and those string lights that are battery-powered. It was a sad and poignant sight to see every day. At this time, I'd been using the motorway for a few weeks, without incident. It was a Friday evening, and I was driving home from a long day at work. I'd been working overtime due to an important project, and it was around 6.30pm, just starting to get dark. As I approached the enclosed part of the motorway, I slowed down and eventually braked as I could see a line of traffic in front of me. I sighed and waited for the line of cars to begin to move again. I drummed my fingers on the steering wheel and glanced out the window. I had, by sheer chance, stopped by one of the memorial sites. I watched, almost transfixed, as the string of lights someone had hung up flashed on and off, lighting up a couple of small bunches of blue flowers and a small brown teddy bear. I felt a tug on my heart, thinking it must be the memorial for a child. The bear looked old, to the point that its small head was sagging down onto its chest, as if it had lost some stuffing. I stared at the bear for a few moments longer, only to be abruptly pulled from my thoughts by the sound of the car behind me aggressively honking its horn. I muttered under my breath and started to follow the line of traffic once more. As I drove, I checked my rearview mirror and almost slammed on the brake when I saw someone sitting in my back seat. I stared at the reflection for a few solid seconds. They appeared translucent seemingly growing more solid as time went on. Eventually, I could make out a small young boy with white blonde hair, dressed in a thick winter coat and a pair of bright blue trainers. I would almost call the color of those shoes sky blue. The figure gave me a large, almost cheeky smile, swinging his legs as he looked at me. I glanced away for only a second, not believing what I was seeing and when I looked back, the little boy was gone. I whipped my head around, surveying the back seat of the car. The boy was definitely gone. I continued to stare at the seat, terrified yet amazed at the same time. Another honk from the car behind got me moving, and I continued my drive home. When I made it home, I told my partner what I'd seen, and his face drooped. He said he had seen a similar little figure running along the side of the road on more than one occasion. He'd freaked out the first time, thinking it was an actual child and that they were in danger. Only, when he looked back, the child was gone. He'd caught other glimpses since then, but had drawn the conclusion that it was some kind of ghost. He hadn't told me previously as he did not want me to freak out. Later that evening, I looked up stories about any children being involved in accidents on Sky Blue Way, and I found something on our local newspaper site. A young family had died in a terrible car accident on that stretch of the motorway about six months previously. The article included a picture of the family. Standing next to his mother and father and his older sister was that same little boy wearing a pair of bright blue trainers. The Face at the Window From Strider 
This is my only encounter with the paranormal. It happened between the ages of 8 to 10. I'm now 28. While I remain interested in horror and shows like this, I think my childhood experience taught me never to treat the spiritual world lightly or as a joke. There are things out there that are real, unexplainable, and dangerous. I grew up in Middle Tennessee with two loving parents, a brother three years my elder and a sister three years younger. We lived on a big hill right outside the city limits and we had plenty of space to go exploring in our backyard or in the woods nearby. I suppose it's worth mentioning there was a small cemetery not 100 feet from our back door. But really, we never found it creepy, just mildly interesting. There were maybe 10 faded headstones in various states of disrepair, possibly dating back to a skirmish that took place in our town during the Civil War. But that's not what my story is about. As a kid, I was what you might call an active sleeper. I would carry on conversations while sleeping and sleepwalk. More than once, my mom would catch me trying to go outside around midnight, dead asleep. She would guide me back to bed, and I would mutter some nonsense, and that would be that. My brother and I shared bunk beds, with him on the top bunk, and he would often wake up at night with eyes on the back of his head, my eyes fully asleep. I'd apparently stare at my brother with my head and hands perched over the side of his mattress. Needless to say, he found it quite unnerving. But there were worse things, too. Night terrors and sleep paralysis. Sometimes I would scream bloody murder, thrash in my bed, never actually awake, until my mom and brother were able to calm me down and it would subside. I wouldn't even remember it happening the next day. The sleep paralysis was much scarier for me, because no one would be there to console me when these incidents occurred. If you've ever experienced sleep paralysis for yourself, you know how powerless you feel and how easily the panic sets in, making it harder for you to fully wake up and move. While this all may be intriguing or a little bit unsettling, I suppose it's fairly common. What I would see at night during this time, however, was painfully uncommon. Now, my brother isn't a prankster by any means. Sure, he had a bit of a temper, and he could bully me sometimes. But to be fair, I could be a very annoying and antagonizing younger brother when I wanted. This is just to say he had nothing to do with what I saw. He was just as scared by some of my nightly actions as I was. We had a window facing our bunk beds, so that when you woke up and looked up, you'd be looking straight at it. For about a year off and on, I would wake up and I would see a stark white face staring at me through that window. I suppose it had a body as well, but all I ever saw was its face and large hands pressed up against the glass eagerly, its eyes staring at me wide and hungry. It looked like something that had never seen sunlight. I remember him so clearly, almost 20 years later, that grinning mouth with tombstone-like teeth that was in no way a smile, those massive hands spread across most of the window pane, and those dark, huge eyes completely fixated on me. This would happen at any hour of the night, sometimes right before sunrise, and increased in frequency to the point where I would see him every night. I would start to keep my blinds closed, and I would wake up with them wide open, with him waiting on the other side of the glass. It was this living nightmare that could be so easily explained by night terrors or sleepwalking, except I would always be wide awake when he was watching me, as if he wanted me to know he was waiting for me. Like I said, Everything else I knew because my brother or mom would tell me about it later. But this man at the window, he made sure I remembered him. I think it was because I was such an active sleeper that he was drawn to me in some way, hungry for some part of me that radiated energy. In the end, I only knew two things for certain. This thing would have taken me if it could. And it was unable to enter the house. 
I credit my parents' faith for protecting me. Now I'm not here to preach to anyone, but for me at least, I never saw the man at the window again after being baptized. It stopped immediately after I made that choice. The only issue I had after that was my sleep paralysis, which happened occasionally all the way through my early 20s. This is the first time I've shared my story. Thank you for listening. If you've ever seen a pale face with hungry eyes at your window, just know you're not alone. Warning. The following story contains graphic depictions of violence against pets. Odd things happened on my family's farm. From Random Guy. I'm 18 years old now, but when this happened, I was around 13 years old. I lived with my dad back then. He was always working. My mom, my sister, and my two older brothers lived with us too. This story takes place on a farm that has a forest in the backyard, which connects to a creek and more forest. When we first moved in, we had a few cats, and my parents decided that the cats could live outside. We would only feed and give them water and of course take them to the vet if needed, but mostly we left the cats to themselves. Eventually, more cats began showing up, and one of these cats we named Fluffy. Well, one day, Fluffy got pregnant, giving birth to a litter of four kittens. One of these kittens I really liked, and I named him Zippy. I loved that cat. Time went on and more cats showed up. But one day the cats started going missing, and we didn't know why. So naturally, we assumed it was due to coyotes or raccoons. There were a few in the woods nearby, so that was the conclusion we came to. Something that escalated this was when we had gotten chickens to raise for eggs. We'd put them in the chicken coop, which is only a few feet from the edge of the woods. One night we suddenly heard the chickens going crazy, so my two older brothers went out to investigate. When they were outside, they said they saw a large gray coyote scratching at the door of the coop, trying to get inside it. So they ran back in the house, grabbed a gun, and shot at it to scare it away. But that was only the beginning. Later on in March, one of my older brothers went out to feed the chickens in the rain. I'm talking really heavy rain, like the kind that makes it hard to see and makes the ground all kinds of nasty. When my brother was out there, I was in the living room. Suddenly, he ran inside, looking completely panicked. I asked what was wrong. He said he saw a man that didn't look like any of our neighbors. He was walking around our woods, looking into our property. So we called the cops, but they never found the guy. Shortly after that, stuff began to go missing from our barn, like the bale hook, which is what you use to stab hay bales to help them move and stack them, as well as a few lead ropes. We didn't know who or what was doing it. Now, as I mentioned before, some of our cats had started to go missing. Well, one day I noticed Zippy had gone missing too. One day when my mom and sister went out to make sure no trees had fallen, after a particularly bad storm. We've had it happen before due to some of the dirt and soil outside being quite loose, and they could end up hitting power lines. So they went out to the woods to check, and what they found was our missing lead rope, tied into a noose, left on a branch of a tree, and my cat Zippy, gutted with the bale hook still stuck in him. To this day, we still have no idea who did that, and I'm glad we don't live there anymore. Warning. The following story contains graphic depictions of violence against pets. The reason I still have arachnophobia. From Prayer Kumari. I was born in Fiji in 1979. At about four years old, when my twin older brothers were sleeping, I was playing with their toys on the floor in their room. This is the tropics right on the equator. Things grow bigger here. No joke, we had six-inch-long cockroaches that flew. 
Imagine what eats those and how big they would get. Now, we had these windows that opened only a foot wide. They didn't have screens. At the age of four, I'd already been developing solid, vivid memories. A lot of messed up things happened in those years. So being hypervigilant was a constant thing for us. Prior to this incident, about two months back, we lost four kittens in one night because of our neighbor's psycho Great Dane. I was the one who found them. Rather, pieces of them. Just a massacre. He didn't just kill our brand new kittens. We had less than 24 hours. He also bit my lab collie mix, Maxie. So anyway, I was playing in my brother's room while they slept right there. I'm on the floor playing with these toy trucks, and I see something stirring out of the corner of my eyes. I thought maybe my brothers were waking up, so I stood up to run away. The only time I could play with their toys and not get in trouble was while they were sleeping. But when I stood up and looked their way, they were still asleep, side by side on a single bed. Then I saw what was moving. It was this huge black ball of fur about the size of a six-month-old cat. I thought, oh God, we got a new cat, I guess. So I walked over to pet it. That's when I saw one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen. This creature I'd assumed was a cat reared up on four hind legs, spreading the upper four out. It expanded to twice its size. It had fangs over an inch long. It hissed at me loud. By then, I'm screaming bloody murder. My brothers are awake now and whimpering. No doubt as scared as I was. As this thing looks like it's about to pounce on me, my mom runs in, sees what's happening, then runs and gets a broom. Like that was going to do anything other than tee this thing off. She swings at it, and this monster of a spider as big as a cat jumps out the window over seven feet from where it was and was gone. We never saw it before or after that day. Now, I'm not stupid. I know what a spider is and I know what a cat is. I would not mistake the two. I never would have reached for it had I known it wasn't a cat, nor did I have a reason to think any spider could be mistaken for one. To this day, I am terrified of spiders, and I've looked for this in research over the years. I have never seen anything close to it. My brothers still remember this thing, but my mom does not. Now, looks-wise, this thing could have been a cousin to the Huntsman Spider, but it was all black. Not to mention Australia, where the Huntsman Spider is located, is not far from Fiji. This thing no doubt lived in the massive storm drain for hurricanes next to our home. This was a week before a hurricane hit. Maybe it was leaving for higher ground. We were on sea level. This spider had to have eaten chickens for breakfast. And I was pretty small when I was four. I can't help but wonder if it was hunting me that night. Possible Skinwalker in Missouri From Walter2789 This incident happened when I was 12 years old. I was camping with my dad. We had decided to go to our cabin by the river for the weekend. It was a small, bare cabin in Missouri, but I loved it as a kid. We set off driving and on the way we picked up some pizza to eat at the cabin. Eventually, we arrived at the property and settled into the cabin for a while. We played cards for a bit, until it got dark outside. Then we went out and made a campfire, as it was a very nice night. I sat in a lawn chair, ate some pizza out of our cooler while my dad gathered firewood. He finally started the campfire and we sat for a while, telling stories and eating. I was having a great time. It was super peaceful out. That was until I heard a strange noise in the woods. From out of the woods, I heard this low guttural growl that was more like a deep and slowed down scream. I was terrified, so I asked my dad if we could go back inside. He said, it's fine, I'm sure it's just some animal. But I remained creeped out. We stayed put, and I stared into the forest, trying to see what was behind the trees. 
That's when I heard another scream, this time higher and closer. What I saw next will haunt me forever. There was this tall black creature with red beady eyes and a small head. It also had these mangled antlers on its head. It couldn't have been a deer because it was standing on two legs. Whatever it was, it stared straight at me and my father. Suddenly, my dad tugged on my sweatshirt, motioning me to follow him back inside. After that, I heard the scream again, but this time, it sounded like my dad screaming, yet he was right beside me. I heard muttering coming from outside. It couldn't be my father. Again, he was actually right next to me, not making a sound. I'd never been so scared before, nor confused. My dad and I sat on the bed in the cabin. We locked all the windows and doors. I clutched onto my stuffed animal and looked through the window. I swear at some point I saw it scratching at the glass. I hid under the covers and prayed that it didn't come in. Eventually, I fell asleep. And when my dad and I woke up in the morning, we hurriedly packed everything in the car and left. I think what we saw that night may have been a skinwalker. And to this day, it's the scariest thing I've ever experienced. You can never really trust the woods. The Lady in the Lake From Haunted, Texas Before I begin, this is my uncle's story, not my own. For some context, I'll tell you about the legend behind this encounter. Where I'm from, there's an old story about a woman and her boyfriend who had just come back from war. The man's best friend had lied to him, telling him his girlfriend had kept him company while he was at war, if you catch my drift. So the man, in his anger, decided to take his girlfriend out to a lake, and he drowned her. Also, according to that legend, she now haunts the area, and you can supposedly summon her by flashing lights on a certain bridge. But sometimes she can be seen walking around the shoreline, wailing, crying, looking for revenge. My uncle asked me to send in the story so others could hear of his terror. My uncle and his friends decided they wanted to do some late-night hiking and fishing around the more forested area around the lake. So, late at night, they packed up their supplies and headed out. After getting there, the sun had already went down, so they decided to set up camp and fish for a bit. At 10 o'clock or so, my uncle's friends decided they wanted a bit of an adrenaline rush. So, they wanted to go on a walk along the cliff. My uncle quickly declined, saying he'd stay and watch camp. After his friends left, my uncle looked out into the lake. It was then, he said, he saw what looked to be a young woman. She was face down. He quickly ran over, thinking she was hurt or dead. He flipped her over, then immediately froze in horror. He claimed that the body looked as if it had been underwater for decades. It was clearly a young woman with the face of pure terror frozen on her face. My uncle, terrified, ran back to shore and grabbed his gun. When he looked at the woman, she began to stand up. After that, she started to wail and scream, walking towards my uncle. He yelled for his friends, hoping they would come back, but he couldn't just wait there, so he ran for his life back to the small cabin. He stayed in the cabin and eventually fell asleep. When he woke up, he noticed he had a few calls from his friends. He called them back, agreeing to meet them at a nearby diner to explain what went on. When they arrived, he told them everything. His friends sat there in disbelief. After he finished his story, one of his friends then threw something on the table. It was a necklace with a locket. When they opened the locket, water spilled out, and an old photo of a man and woman hugging each other was inside. He was shocked when he realized the woman in the photo was the same woman he had seen the night before. 
He then decided he wanted to throw the necklace back in the lake, just so he wouldn't be haunted by the memory of this encounter. After the whole ordeal, my uncle began asking other people about this legend. He soon discovered this was not a new thing. Encounters like this had been happening around that lake for years. Where they'd been camping was extremely close to the bridge where that woman had been drowned. True Paranormal Experience From Yumi This happened quite a few years back. I was a recent graduate, working as a low-paid radio presenter for the local television station, dating a man much older than me named Jordan. Jordan was a renowned artist and writer. Our relationship was never as close as I would have wanted it to be. There was always the excuse of work and other personal issues that would stand in the way. His mother had recently suffered a stroke, so we were all busy tending to her in some way, even though she was an extremely headstrong and independent woman. Every week, a professional stylist would come over to her apartment, fix her hair up, and paint her nails. She was very adamant on maintaining her physical appearance, despite her slight immobilization and health conditions. I would often visit her and we'd talk over coffee and her countless cigarettes. One day, I stayed the night with my boyfriend. The next morning, I was busy making breakfast for all of us. His mother was still in bed, sleeping longer than usual. Jordan decided it was time to wake her up, since the food was almost ready. He entered her room only to exit almost immediately, swiftly walking over to me where I had a view of what just occurred. Confused, I asked what was going on, and in a hushed voice, he quickly said, Go home. She's gone. I don't want you to see this. I instantly knew what had happened. I listened, grabbing my coat and leaving. The next few days were a blur. I was called over for a final open casket viewing before they transported her body to a nearby city where she was to be cremated then buried. As soon as it started, it was all over and calm again. The funeral was over, and Jordan was now home. I went over to his apartment to spend time with him. A close friend of ours had traveled to pay her respects, and we invited her to stay the night, before her travel back the next morning. I was pacing the living room up and down, suddenly starting to feel emotions welling up in me, stronger than what I was ready for. I happened to look up at the grandfather clock sitting against a wall when I thought I noticed the hands going backwards then forward again. It was a kind of methodical pattern. I stayed transfixed on it for a few seconds, not quite believing what I was seeing. Finally, I snapped out of it and decided to go check the other clocks in the bedroom. I hadn't thought to turn the lights on, so it took me a second to focus my eyes but when I eventually did, I was not even surprised to see that the clocks in this room were also acting up. A kind of happy, melancholic feeling washed over me, and I shouted for Jordan and our friend to come and see. They were just as surprised as I was, but none of us seemed afraid. We all just smiled knowingly. Even in the so-called afterlife, his mother still kept her sense of humor alive. Eventually, we quieted down and sat down on the living room sofa to watch some TV before bed. It was around 11 p.m. when the screen unexpectedly turned to static. My boyfriend stood up to most likely slam his hand on the TV in an attempt to fix it when suddenly the static turned to a completely black screen with a message in the corner saying, Sleep 3. Jordan remained standing in the middle of the room a few steps away from the TV, with his hands on his waist. He just stared at the screen. The message soon disappeared, turning back to static. We all let out a small chuckle then, promptly turning off the TV. Listening to the message, we all made our way to bed. Nobody was alarmed in the slightest. We all knew who was behind it, and honestly, it was a nice way to say goodbye.
Thank you for listening to another unsettling episode of Unexplained Encounters. You can send us your story to have it narrated on the show at darkstories.org. Unexplained Encounters is an EerieCast original series. You can find other horror-themed podcasts at EerieCast.com, such as Redwood Bureau, a fictional anthology series, Freaky Folklore, a documentary-style series about myths and cryptids around the world, Destination Terror, a show about the most haunted places, and Tales from the Break Room, another show I host all about the scary things that happen to people at work. Again, that's EerieCast.com. By the way, if you want fewer annoying ads and you want to support what we do, consider going to EerieCast.com plus to sign up for EerieCast Plus. That unlocks all our podcasts with all but host red ads removed. Until next time, stay safe out there and stay creepy because this world is a strange one.